Well, hello, Mountain. How's everyone doing today? Awesome. My name is Erin, and I am one of the pastors here. You know, most weekends you're going to find me along with my husband, Nathan, and our two little girls over at the Bel Air campus. But can I just say, it is really good to be with all of our campuses today. So a shout out to Bel Air, to Edgewood, to Abingdon, to Mountain Road, and also to our friends who are watching online. It's good to be together. Now I want to kick off our time with a story today. Let me just set the scene for you. It was mid-July in Atlanta, so that automatically should tell you hot, humid. And Nathan and I were ready for our first adventure in the woods together. We had been dating for three years at this point, and during that time, I had seen him take a number of backpacking trips with some of his favorite people. So his dad, his brother, a whole bunch of family, friends, but this is going to be my first invitation to join him, and I was excited. To prepare for the excursion, I was told to pack light, so a sleeping bag, water bottle, some comfortable clothes for walking, also good walking shoes, a raincoat. And my expert packer of a boyfriend said that he would handle everything else. My only goal was to show up at his dad's house on Friday afternoon with everything in tow. And that's exactly what I did. I showed up Friday afternoon, passed all the goods off to Nathan, and I sat there and talked to his family. Now, at one point, I did look over in the corner of the room where he was packing up our bags. And imagine with me, he had these big bags. And he had like a box about this big. It was a boot box. And he's trying to shove that in the bottom of the backpack. Now, of course, I thought, this goes against every guidelines of packing light. You told me to bring just a few things, and you're packing a huge box? So I asked him, what is this all about? What's this box? And his response was, oh, it's just a game we're going to be playing. Now, I was naive enough, again, first backpacking trip, naive enough to believe him. And I was like, all right, well, I guess he knows what he's doing. So I'll just pack up the rest of my stuff, you know, finish talking to his family. And then that's exactly what we did. We kind of said our goodbyes and we headed off. What unfolded over the next 24 hours is really hard to put in words. I will tell you that we did eventually make it to our campsite. It came at the expense of a torrential downpour that hit us right as we were getting out of our car and going onto the trailhead. In fact, we walked two hours that night with just our little headlamps guiding the way in the dark, in the rain, on a very narrow ridge. First backpacking trip. Um, I will say there was a lot of laughter and thankfully Nathan made it fun for me. We were in good spirits, and it was turning out to be quite the adventure. But we uh, quickly fell asleep when we got to the campsite and um, was grateful for the next morning. Because the next morning came, the skies broke open, there were beautiful scenery all around. We enjoyed some great conversation as we made our way to one of the most beautiful waterfalls I've ever seen. Now, at this point in the story, you might be asking, where is she going with all of this? Well, if you haven't figured this out yet, here's the spoiler. This was no ordinary backpacking trip. And that box that I described, there was no game in that box. Rather, there was a picture that Nathan had painted. Now, if Nathan knew that I was going to show this picture, he might kind of cringe a little bit. He doesn't claim to be the painter. But I think it's lovely, don't y'all? Just look at it. And you you can see the story unfold with me. So you see two hands right there. Check this out. That's this ring. They're joined together. They're going into the horizon. This represents God and all the images that you see there. Hey, this was a familiar image to me because it was one that was given to us just a couple years into our dating relationship. It was described to us as how 
someone would find their mate, look for their mate. The idea of two people, each running as hard and as fast as they can for Jesus, eventually finding one another, kind of linking hands and doing that together for the rest of their life. So the scene that unfolded from there is probably one that many people are familiar with. Either you've experienced firsthand or you've definitely seen it in a movie. Some common images for proposals. One, a man down on one knee. Words of love pouring out of his mouth, a beautiful ring, and an invitation sealed with a boisterous yes. Or if you are me, I screamed, good gosh, yes, as loud as I could over the waterfall when he asked me, would you like to marry me? So uh, here's the point in the story that if you want to stop and just go, oh, isn't that sweet? Isn't that sweet? It's so sweet. Um, But I tell you this because these are common images. This proposal that I just described, they're common images for our part of the world, right? There might not always be waterfalls and pictures attached to these scenes, but almost always you can recognize times like this with a bended knee and some pretty awesome words. So through his words and actions that weekend, I knew without a doubt that Nathan valued me that he was crazy about me, that he was gonna be devoted to me. He showed it through meaningful actions and he said it in clear and powerful ways. And that same sentiment is at the heart of every blessing. The good news is that it's not just for future brides. The blessing, as we've been talking about in this series, is for everyone. We all need it, we all desire it, and we all get the opportunity to give it to others. It's just that assurance that you are loved, that you belong, and that you have great purpose in this life. And it comes from God through his people. So the past few weeks, we've honed in on some very practical ways that we can communicate blessing to others. A couple weeks ago, Luke talked to us about meaningful touch. And that's just the idea of touching others in a way that honors them. It's never for our benefit, it's always for the benefit of that person and for the sake of communicating things like acceptance, inclusion, and affirmation. And then if you were here last week, you heard Ben talk about spoken word and just the idea that a blessing can only come to fruition, it can only fulfill its purpose when it is spoken. Since words have the power to either tear down or to build up, we commit to be blessing givers, those people who give these blessings, who share these words in life-giving ways. Words like, I'm sorry, I thank you, I love you. Now, we didn't come up with these concepts on our own. We've actually borrowed them from a great book that you are welcome to check out if you wanna learn more. It's called The Gift of the Blessing. It's by Gary Smalley and John Trent. You can pick up your own copy for about $10 on Amazon. But there's some great biblical resources in this book that talk along the idea of blessing. And in fact, we're gonna jump right into another concept this weekend that's all about attaching high value. So at its core, blessing is about attaching high value to others. In fact, touch isn't really meaningful and spoken words aren't really words of blessing unless first we have the right perspective. We know what our goal is in giving them. In Hebrew, which was the language of the Old Testament scriptures, the root word for bless is barak. Sound familiar, right? Well, the word itself literally means to bend the knee. It's a word that was used regularly in the Old Testament to describe how a camel would bend its knee so that its master could get on. I want you to think about the imagery with me. 
And I think we've got a picture for you so you can see it too. You know, camels are heralded for their ability to travel great distances on little food or water. And because of this, um, they were, and they were very trustworthy in travel, they had great value to their masters, especially in biblical times. In fact, they often carried precious cargo. So it wasn't uncommon to read in the scriptures about, you know, a beloved son or daughter riding along on the camel or maybe even kings or queens. But because they were so tall, and Google tells me that's about six feet tall, then they weren't easy to climb onto. So they were trained to bend their knee or to kneel so that their master could get on. It's a powerful image of an important, honored animal kneeling to an even more important, honored person. And from this image, we learn that to bend the knee just means to attach high value to another. Just like camels, we get to be those people who bend the knee towards others. So what I'm not saying is that you leave this place today and you go out and every conversation that you enter into, you get down on your knees. That might be a little bit strange. You get some laughter. But what I am saying is that our spiritual posture can still mimic the posture of bending the knee. It can be one that communicates respect and honor and high value. And only with this type of posture can we actually give the blessing to others. So King David knew this better than anyone, and in Psalm 103, he sings, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all of your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. You recognize these words? We said them earlier. And in doing so, we join David in just calling out, you know, it's God who is the king of kings. It is he who is worthy of our praise. And in David, when saying these words and us in responding and saying them too, we're just recognizing God's intrinsic value. Just because who he is he is valuable. He is worthy of us bending the knee. Now, I want us to look at this in the context of blessing others. So if our natural response to recognizing God's worth is to bless, then we've got a whole lot of blessing to be doing because we can see that intrinsic value, God's worth in all of creation and all human beings and every single person who is here and the person right next to you in fact, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 reads, So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God, our Father, created us in such a way that we bear his image. That is to say, you bear the family resemblance. If you were to show up at the family reunion, nobody's going to question whether you belong. In fact, just entertain me for a minute. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and just go ahead and say, girl or boy, you look just like your daddy. You look just like your daddy. You do. And part of what this means is that you too are worthy of the blessing. You look like your heavenly father. And it's not something that you have to earn. It is intrinsic to how God created you. I do want to say, though, um, I recognize that this is a hard concept for some of us. And if that's 
your case and you're having a little bit of pushback to it, then you might want to ask yourself, whose voice am I letting define my value? Whether consciously or subconsciously, who am I giving that right to say I am a certain way, to decide my worth? This is a hard question. And it's a sobering one for many of us because we've been either touched in ways or spoken to in ways that do not communicate high value. We've been used rather than celebrated, beaten down rather than built up. And many of us have given into the lies of those voices that say we are who we are. So again, I ask you, whose voice are you letting to define your value? You might really need to sit with this question and bring an honest answer. And if it's not God's voice that comes to your answer, if that's not the voice that you're listening to, then you have every right and you should just push right up against that voice because it is only God who has the right to say you are who you are. It is only God who knows you intimately enough to be able to speak into your value. And he says that no amount of sin or shame can separate you from the love of his son, Jesus Christ. No matter who you are, what you've done, where you've been, your value has been set. And it cannot be changed. You are God's beloved. And that means that you have incredibly high value. I love that line by the old Christian author, similar, you know, great Christian writer, C.S. Lewis. He just says, there are no ordinary people. You have never met a mere mortal. The people you see every single day, even the ones to whom you give little regard, they are not ordinary in God's eyes. All of us bear markings of our heavenly father. And you do too, all of us. So when we start realizing that, when we actually claim that truth, it obviously affects how we see ourselves and others. We start seeing ourselves and others very differently. In fact, we even start speaking about ourselves and others differently. We read in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, that a good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. And an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what's in your heart. And this verse just reminds us that if you value God, if your spiritual posture is one of blessing, then it's going to come out in your words. It's going to be obvious. And the flip side is true too. If you do not value God, then that's going to come out in how you speak about others. So in the time that we have left together today, we want to take a look at some guiding principles for how we can attach that high value to others through words of blessing. And the first main point that we want to bring is the type of word we want to use, genuine words. There you see it. So genuine, this is a fun word. It's a common word. You might know what it means. It just means truly what something is said to be or authentic. Genuine comes from the root word in Latin that is genu, genu, which just means knee. So that's kind of fun. It's another knee word. And the tradition was in ancient Rome, when an infant was born, the first thing that a father would do, would take, he would take that infant and he would place him or her on his knee as a way to say to the entire community, you see this one right here? 
he belongs to me. Or this one right here, she's my daughter. There's no question, she belongs to me. She's part of my family. And there's great love and respect and a true identity that's claimed in that. It's a pretty powerful image and it was a way to express high value. See the connection? Genuine words reinforce who the Father says we are. Genuine words remind us of our belovedness. And Jesus was so good about reminding people of who God said they were. In fact, we can read a whole bunch of examples in Scripture. It's just go ahead and pull out, you know, the first four books of the New Testament, just the Gospels that describe Jesus' life, and we see a number of these. To a woman caught in adultery, he said, I don't condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. To Zacchaeus, who was a despised tax collector, he said, you've been saved. You're part of my family now. To the woman who was judged and ridiculed for pouring expensive perfume on his feet, he said, you are doing a beautiful thing. And to some lowly fishermen, he said, from now on, you're going to fish for me. I need you and I want you to join me. Jesus told people that they were worthy of God's blessing. Where the world identified them by their sinfulness, Jesus first identified them by their belovedness. Hear that again. When the world identified them by their sinfulness, Jesus first identified them by their belovedness. So that no matter what they did or didn't do, they were worthy of God's love and attention, forgiveness and salvation. And this is what Jesus does. Whenever the world tries to define us by our sinfulness, he instead identifies us by our belovedness. And that's what we get to do. We get to join him as blessing givers. It's our first and primary job to inform and to remind our parents, our kids, our spouse, our neighbors, our enemies, our friends, everyone of what their true identity is. We get to remind them that before they were saved by grace, they were God's beloved. And so we yield our words to communicate this truth. We call out the goodness of God in them whenever we can using genuine words, words that just mimic what God says of them. Now, uh, one of my roles here at Mountain is I get to work with a whole bunch of college students who come and join our staff for usually about four or five months at a time. They do an internship with us. And uh, our whole team, and many of you, we rally around these young leaders, and we get to remind them who God is, help them discover who they are in God, and discover different gifts that they have that can be used in ministry. And we end, it's a very intense time of, uh, you know, we get to know each other quite well. And then we end our time together with a blessing retreat. There's a couple things that we do in that retreat that very much illustrate what we're talking about today. The first is we say eulogies of one another. Now, I know you're thinking, oh my goodness, what kind of internship is this? I don't want to be a part of it if they're saying eulogies. Uh, nobody's dying. Uh, we are at the end of our time together. But eulogy, the word itself in Greek just means a good word. So instead of waiting until they're gone before we say a eulogy, we maximize that time when we're together to actually write out words about them and then say those words to their face. And so words like, you know, you have a way of making others feel welcome. You're a good listener. You have been a safe and forgiving friend to me. 
That's the kind of stuff that comes out in these eulogies. And then we give them an actual copy that they get to take home and just pull out whenever they need a reminder of who they are. And can I tell you, I got a text from an alumni a number of years ago who was going through a hard time. And she said, you know what keeps me grounded? She said, I keep my eulogy in the glove box of my car. And on those days where I don't remember that I'm loved, it's so good to pull that out, have those words, and be reminded who I am. Another thing that we do with them is we call them exit interviews. It doesn't sound very glorious, but uh, the time is really a unique time. We pull each of these interns in, just our team sits down one-on-one, and we just use these genuine words, lavish them upon them, and say, hey, here's where you rock. It's that I see in you language. And we're honest with them. And we tell them, you know what? Here's some other areas that we believe are your greatest obstacles to greatness. And guess what? Sometimes blessing comes in the form of hard truths too. And then we use our last of our time just to say, hey, you know what? Based on all that we've seen and what we know about you, you might want to consider this as a career path, as your next steps. And can I tell you, it's a deep time of emotion. There are often quite a few tears shed because a lot of these young people have never had anybody speak into them so honestly and in a way that's meant to build them up. Again, genuine words that mimic what God says of them. So y'all, even my kindergartner, and her friends can do this. Okay, so uh, if you're a teacher, you know this. Or if you've got kids who are in school, we're in those last few days. Kids are getting crazy. And one of the ways that the kindergarten teacher at my school has been trying to you know, keep the kids on track is to celebrate the last 26 days of school with an alphabet countdown. So T minus 14 was the letter N. And that meant that that particular day, all the kids were going to write nice notes to one another. So Addie, my six-year-old, came home with this note in her backpack. And it, it's so awesome. Okay, it says, if you can read with me, Dear Addie, you are always beautiful and you work hard all the time. Your handwriting is always good. I live it so much, Addie. You are always, and this one took me a minute to figure out, nice every day. And this is the best part. Sen sincerely. Isn't that awesome? Y'all, that's a six-year-old. It's so cool, right? A six-year-old gets this concept and can do genuine words of high value. It, made, it puffed up my girl. She felt so strong, and she's trying to live into that. Genuine words. Okay, the next way that we can do this, our next guiding principle, is to use evocative words. See it? Evocative. Now, evocative, say it with me evocative. This comes from the word evoke, which just means to bring out, uh, bring to mind strong images or memories or feelings. And the more specific the evocative words, the better. So I was on Zillow's website not that long ago, the real estate marketplace, and I read an article that talked about the top 15 words that you're going to want to use if you're trying to list your home and sell it for the highest value. Okay, words like luxurious, captivating, steel, Basketball, okay? Landscaped, pergola, remodel, granite, and a few others. Homes that listed using these words sold for an average of 7% more than homes that were listed without them. Okay, so that tells me that realtors and salespeople, advertisers, they all understand the power of specific evocative words and communicating high value. This is not a new concept. 
In fact, it's a very effective one in the area of blessing. And there are tons of examples throughout scripture of people attaching high value to others through the use of evocative words. And another way to say that is just through the use of word pictures, you know, images that you can play out in your mind. These illustrations would have been very specific to each individual and images that in that time and place would have really meant something. So I want to share with, one, share with you one that comes um, from the book of Genesis. It's the life of Isaac. It's a passage that Ben talked about a couple weeks ago when Isaac is giving the blessing to his son. Now, he thinks it's Esau, but it's really Jacob. And he says these words of blessing. Just listen for the evocative words. He says, All the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you heaven's dew and earth's richness, an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. So a couple images that are strong, right? Well, to one, the word blessed describing a field in and of itself would have meant fruitful. Automatically, Jacob's mind would have gone, livelihood, I'm gonna be okay. There's prosperity with this. Heaven's dew would have also created that image. You know, in an area, this context where it was dry, it was arid, they only had two rainy seasons and they were very short. So they relied on heaven's dew in order to to make the land prosperous. So when Jacob heard this, he would have known what that meant. And then the powerful words of whole nations bowing down to him. Again, elevating him as a high, a person of high value. These evocative words, no doubt, helped Jacob see and live into his worth. It was a great example of a patriarchal blessing. In fact, I think Jacob probably learned so much from this blessing that we can even move forward a couple pages in Scripture and see at the end of Genesis, Jacob's at the end of his life, and he decides to bless his sons. And he calls together all 12 of them, and he one by one gives them words of blessing. And a couple of them are very strong images. To Judah, he calls him a lion's cub. You think about a lion, strong. And he's just calling out the strength of character and the high leadership qualities of his son. To Neptali, he calls him a doe. When you think about a doe, think about gentle, kind, graceful, beautiful. To Joseph, he likens him to a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches come up over a wall. And if you know Joseph's story, this would have just been talking about his unfailing trust in the Lord. It was like a bountiful you know, bush or branch climbing over a wall, and he would have provided a place of refuge for his family. These weren't just well wishes from a father to his son, but they were also futures or invitations for the sons to live into. They weren't lengthy, but they were powerful. That's what evocative words do. In fact, probably some of you have nicknames, right? Well, nicknames are evocative words. They're word pictures. Many of them are. And so we need to be asking ourselves, when we give nicknames to people, are we passive-aggressively communicating an image or a part of value that we're, that's not honoring to them or to God? Are we choosing nicknames that actually build people up? Once a mentor gave me the blessing through a powerful word image, and you could call it a nickname, she said, Aaron, you are like a velvet brick. <laughs> I didn't quite know where she was going at first. 
And then she started to explain, I've never seen a velvet brick. So she was like, you know, think about it. When people first meet you, you're warm and inviting, you're safe and comforting. People like to be with you. But then when you get close to you, man, you're strong. There's some strength to you. You have the ability to speak hard truth into people. And, and often it's, it's for the sake of breaking them down so that they can be built up. You have people do, you do that to people in a way that at the end they actually say thank you to you. I never heard that compliment before. But that's what a velvet brick does. And as I thought about this image, I thought, wow, that's awesome. I want to be a velvet brick. I want to be that person who balances high invitation and high challenge, grace and truth. And that word image gave me a picture that not only I could claim as my own, but an invitation to actually lean into that. You know, studies have shown that when we hear a word as a picture, our brains actually work faster than when we hear words that aren't as evocative. Specific words that are attached to images, they conjure up all sorts of emotions and they actually propel us into action. So it makes sense now when you think about Jesus and how he taught. He used parables all the time because they challenged, they invited, they motivated others to action. And so again, we love giving resources around here. If you wanna get a great resource that talks about this and how you can use word images to communicate things that words alone can't do, The Language of Love, highly recommend it. It's an easy read. It's actually written by some of the children of those who wrote this book on the blessing. Great little resource for you. Okay, our third principle for attaching high value through words is just use hopeful words. Maybe you read an article on CNN this week of a recent grad from Harvard by the name of Kristen Gilmer. Well, last Saturday, she graduated with, as a doctor of public health, and in the interview with CMN, CNN, she praised her sixth grade teacher named Judith Tosing for not just teaching her about the intersection of global health and human rights, but for actually being one of the few people outside of her parent who said, I believe in you, and I believe you can accomplish your dreams. So if you're a teacher, take note of this. Look what she did. She actually wrote a message and then spoke it to her at the end of the year on her report card. And it just says, it has been a joy to have you in class. Keep up the good work. Invite me to your Harvard graduation. How cool! Kristen kept it for 21 years. And then she took that note right before graduation and she found her sixth grade teacher and she invited her to graduation. So cool, right? You don't realize how powerful your messages can be, how they can paint a future for someone that they can live into and start to to see as that blessing. And the article went on to describe how this not only blessed Kristen Gilmer, but obviously her teacher too. And she said, you know what? This experience has revitalized me. It has energized me to become a better teacher for my students. That's what blessing does. It's a gift to everyone who's involved. Hopeful words that paint a picture of something beautiful and good to come. Every person needs this, whether they're 13, 33, or 83. Think of the apostle Peter. He originally went by the name Simon, and Simon was a rough and tough fisherman before Jesus entered his life. Then Jesus came along and he called him Peter, which just means rock, and helped him see the leader that he really was. Throughout his life, Peter was prone to being more like shifting sand. And you read his story and you see these periods of incredible faith and then debilitating doubts and back and forth. And so like us, Peter needed reminders of who God saw him to be. 
And one of those came in Matthew chapter 16 when Peter first publicly said that, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. To which Jesus responded, Peter, because of your confession of faith, because you have said who I am, let me just remind you who you are. You are Peter. You are a rock. And on that confession, my church will be built. Many people will come to know me because of that confession. And guess what, Peter? You're gonna play a large part in this. And we can read all throughout the book of Acts that that's exactly what happened. Peter lived into it fully. Words create worlds. They help us see and live into futures that we cannot see for ourselves. You know, there's a law in physics that says water cannot rise above a source. And this is especially true in the area of blessing. So if a parent tells a child that his or her value is low, it's hard to rise above those words. If a teacher is always calling out the negative in students, then it is hard to rise above those words. If a person beats him or herself up through negative self-talk, it is hard to rise above those words. If a wife nags at her husband focusing on what he did or didn't do, it is hard to rise above those words and so on and so forth. But good news, the same God who parted the seas and walked on water can cause the waters of blessing to rise and flow in each of our lives too. And we are invited, we are called, we are challenged, and we are blessed to be a part of this story for other people. I wanna leave you with one last image. I want you to picture it with me. A boy stands off to the side of a very well-lit room. And there in the center of the room is a huge mass of marble, a huge piece of stone. It's a very dense form. It doesn't bear much resemblance to anything at that time, but yet it's still beautiful. And around that piece of marble is a sculptor. And that sculptor is there and he's kind of walking around it and kind of getting a feel for the marble. He starts to gently chisel, sculpt, kind of chip away at the form. And all the while he's shouting, come out, come out. The boy's a little bit confused, but he keeps watching. Again, the sculptor, he just keeps doing this, walking around it, chiseling, chipping. His, his actions get faster and his voice becomes more passionate and he's saying, come out, come out. And the boy sees that the man is not screaming in a harsh or condemning way. Rather, it's quite the opposite. There's love, there's passion, there's desire that's good and right and beautiful. And so the, man, the young boy, what once was a confusing time, almost kind of a, a pushback, he starts to draw a little bit closer and he watches the man. And he gets up the courage to go over to the sculptor and just tap him on the shoulder. And he says what are you doing? What is this? The sculptor chiseling, working hard. And he stops and he says, young man, there is an angel in this rock and I am setting it free. The 
this is the story of Michelangelo, the great artist, the great sculptor, when he carved the statue of David. But it's also the story of how God uses us to sculpt others. For Michelangelo's tools were a chisel and a hammer. Ours are our eyes and our mouth. Different tools, but the same job. To see and to call out the angel, the masterpiece, the beloved that is within. And we do that through those genuine, evocative, and hopeful words so that they can be set free to flourish. Friends, there are people around you who are trapped in a rock right now. You know them. Many of them are sitting right next to you. Others you will see later today. And you have a decision. How are you going to respond to them? How are you going to call out to them? What words are you going to share to shape them? We get to be blessing givers. It's pretty powerful. Will you pray with me right now, please? Father God, thank you for calling us your beloved and for inviting us to call this identity out in others. May our words be genuine, evocative, and hopeful as we leave this place today. Help us be brave as we call out the beautiful masterpieces in our families, in our classrooms, in our neighborhoods, and beyond. 